What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Clee Talk presented by FenleyRoadSports.com. I'm your host, Bob. I'm hanging out talking my favorite hometown Cleveland sports with my older brother, Chris. Chris, what's up, man? Not much, Bob. It's starting to snow up here, and I hear this week it's going to dump on us. Lots of snow, plenty of ammunition to build a snowman or something like that, but yeah. uh, it is winter, man. Sure is. Uh, definitely cold in all regions for sure and I'm my voice is a little husky today I apologize for that because I'm coming down with a cold but uh we'll fight through it um Chris Cleveland Browns playing uh not not in inclement weather but certainly in, in a cold weather showdown between the Green Bay Packers over the weekend um and the Browns losing in overtime to Green Bay. Uh, Chris, the, the Browns had a, a two-touchdown lead late in the fourth quarter. Uh, it seemed like they were going to find, get that, that elusive win on the season. Uh, it seemed like they were set to pull it away. Uh, but losing it in Cleveland Browns fashion, uh, I'm just curious, uh, what was your overall takeaway from, from this football game? Typical Browns. That's my overall takeaway. I mean, Bob... This is as close to having a game on a silver platter as you can get. Maybe the only thing closer is, you know, stopping a, a last-minute field goal only to lose the game because you threw your helmet onto the field. That That's probably the only thing closer than this one. Had a 14-point lead heading into the fourth quarter, playing an offense that had done nothing since the first drive. And honestly, that touchdown pass to Jamal Williams was just a terrible coverage breakdown. He was wide open. So really one huge gaffe was the only Green Bay points uh, produced up until the fourth quarter. The Browns had just had a huge play to stop Green Bay on fourth down. They were down deep in Cleveland territory, threatening to tie the game. They stop them on fourth down, go down, score a touchdown to end the third. I mean, you thought that, man, this could be it. And then the Packers scored, and I'm like, you know what? It's probably not going to happen. And, and really, it's, it's sad because all they did was score with 12.50 left. It was a seven-point game. I'm like, you know what? It's probably not going to happen. And sure enough, the Browns found another way to lose somehow, some way. Up until that terrible interception, I thought Deshaun Kaiser actually played fairly well this game. That that touchdown pass to Josh Gordon in the first quarter was a fantastic throw, probably the best throw he's made all year. But he followed it up to end the game on probably the worst throw he's made all year. Uh, Bob, it, it, it was not a good... The first three quarters, they looked like they were turning the corner. And then the fourth quarter struck, and you you remembered that there's still a young team that that's trying to figure out how to close out in the NFL. Yeah, I mean, this, this is very disappointing. Uh, this is a game that I thought the Browns could have won, and obviously late in that game, I thought they were going to win it. Um, I agree, Deshaun Kaiser. Even including that interception, this is probably the best game he's played uh, with three touchdown passes uh, on the day. Uh, made some really good throws in, in tight coverage um, and even had uh, room to, to do more uh, if he had just put the air under the ball a couple times uh, throwing the Josh Gordon. So I, I thought he was, he was great. Um, the interception, though, uh, 
was pretty inexcusable uh, just throwing it up there like that to set up the uh, overtime touchdown for, for the Green Bay Packers. Um, yeah, it's disappointing. I mean, uh, when you have a two-touchdown lead late in the fourth quarter, uh, I, I understand that there are a lot of young guys on defense and, and young guys on offense that might not know how to manage that, but um, that's a situation where I expect Hugh Jackson and his staff to, to lead the Browns to a victory against a team that has been struggling in, in the Packers without Aaron Rodgers. Uh, they should have been able to coach them into wrapping it up, and, and, and they didn't. It's really disappointing. Um, you know, what's the difference between losing this game and winning the game other than avoiding going defeated uh, for the season? I mean, there's still it, it's still going to be a learning opportunity for, for all the players involved, but this was Hugh Jackson's chance to, to get a win and to put some pressure off considering uh, the tumultuous week uh, that occurred leading up to this game. Yeah, we haven't even scratched the surface with the Browns today, as you alluded to earlier. I'm sure all our Klee Talk fans know what we're talking about, the Sashi Brown firing. We'll get to that in just a minute. But, yeah, you're absolutely right, Bob. I mean, the, you've got to bring this game home. I, I don't care how old your team is, if it's the New England Patriots or the Cleveland Browns, a seasoned veteran squad that knows how to win Super Bowls or a team that's growing up. you got to win this game. This is a game that you cannot leave on the table under any circumstances. You are up 14 points heading into the fourth quarter. This is this is a game that you can build off of. This is a game that a young team can finally say, look, we've finally turned the corner. Let's end the season strong, and maybe it can snowball. But instead, you go back to the same old Browns, just terrible, terrible, terrible football for 15 minutes, and it costs you a win again. Isaiah Crowell had a good game, too. 19 carries, 121 yards. Um, Josh Gordon, three catches, 69 yards, and a touchdown. He has looked outstanding the last two games, Bob. I mean, you, you wouldn't think he took two years off of football and with all the problems he had. He, he has looked fantastic. Corey Coleman seems to be turning a corner. Five catches, 62 yards, a touchdown. Duke Johnson, another solid game in the receiving area. The only guy I really was disappointed with is David Njoku, who had a big drop uh, that, that kind of cost them there. But, Bob, they, they looked like they were taking a step forward. Kaiser, 20 of 28, uh, made some great throws. And, and you, you got to bring home this win. You're playing a backup quarterback. I know Green Bay is more than just their quarterback because they got a lot of talent. They've got three excellent wide receivers and, and just a lot of talent. But you're playing a backup quarterback, Bob, and you got him on the ropes. They had been doing nothing for three quarters save for a blown coverage in the first drive. I mean, you, you had the foot on the throat and you just didn't apply any pressure. Yeah, you, you got to bring it home. I, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, and... You know, we, we didn't even talk about the 65-yard punt return uh, that set up uh, Brett Hundley's game-tying touchdown uh, in the fourth quarter. Uh, you know, all of that. I, I, I yes, the, the you know all facets of the Browns team failed late in the game. The offense, defense, and special teams. Um, when something like that happens uh, again, I have to bring it back onto the coaching staff um, when this team is devoid of leaders at this point. Uh, and is just full of young talent and, and guys trying to find their way in the league. Uh, you got to fall back on your coaches, and, and I, I really do think this is uh, 
you know, if I'm going to place the blame on anybody for this game, I, I have to put it on Hugh Jackson and his staff. Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to. It's really hard not to. At the end of the day, though, I mean, the Browns did make some big mistakes down the stretch on the field. But, but yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it, look, there's plenty of blame to go around. But, but yeah, when you when you have a 14-point lead, you, you got to do whatever you can to, to bring that thing home. I mean, yeah, it's just it's just another bad loss, Bob. I mean, it's just another bad loss. Yeah, for sure. Well, Hugh Jackson uh, obviously feeling some pressure uh, before this game uh, even occurred because during the middle of the week, Sashi Brown uh, fired in his role as vice president uh, of the Browns and and kind of director of uh, personnel decisions. Hours later, John Dorsey from the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, former GM there, uh, hired uh, in into the same role. Uh, Chris, are, are you surprised that that Sashi Brown w- was hired? Uh, you know, not not even at season's end, but uh, three fourths of the uh, of the way in, into the season. I think it's pretty surprising, yes, because I, honestly, I thought it might be the other way around that Sashi Brown would keep his job and Hugh Jackson would be the one to go. Um, if we're going to place blame, I actually think the, the coaching and development has been more of a problem than, than talent selection. And I know everyone in Cleveland so quick to point to Carson Wentz and Deshaun Watson, but there are analysts out there who say that Sashi Brown possibly had picked 20 out of 24 players who are going to be multiple-year contributors. Now, that's a very vague statement, multiple-year contributors. So I, I, I don't know if you can evaluate his two drafts right now. But, I mean, you, you, a lot of guys have popped on this team. A lot of guys have contributed that he has brought in here. Let's just look at the number one picks, Bob. I mean, you know, Miles Garrett, yes, probably a disappointing rookie year, but not a failure. He's shown promise. Corey Coleman has been injured galore, but he's still making an impact. Bob, it's amazing that the guy has like broken his hand twice and he's still on the field making plays and he hasn't even played 16 games yet. I mean, just think if this guy hadn't had the injury setbacks, we might be ha- already have a number one wide receiver and then Josh Gordon comes in in the mix. I mean, it, it, it's truly remarkable how well he's played given such a critical injury he's had to deal with. And the other guy, like, is I know I just call him out, but but David Njoku has improved every week. This week he took a step back. But, I, 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 Bob, I think Sashi Brown has done a good job of amassing a ton of resources and a lot of young players. And, and I would have liked to see him get see his plan all the way through. He clearly has set himself up for a big offseason in 2018 with all the cap space and the draft picks he's amassed. Bob, the Browns could have two top five picks this year. And, you know, I mean, potentially four in the top, you know, 40. That's insane. That, that, that is insane. And so, so I'm not knocking John Dorsey. I, I, I definitely like the hire because I like what he did in Kansas City. He is the architect of this current Kansas City Chiefs team that is one heck of a squad. But I was surprised that Sashi Brown was the one who got the axe and, and, and not Hugh Jackson. I actually thought if they were going to make a change, it would be the other way around. Yeah, I, I mean, if you're going to evaluate the two in terms of performance, uh, Sashi Brown uh, far exceeds what Hugh Jackson has done in the two years with, with the Cleveland Browns. I, I think I agree with you. I, I like a lot of the moves that Brown has made, the, the personnel that he's brought in. 
he's as you said ha- has laid a good foundation for uh some serious head gains in, in 2018 and 2019 um he, he's amassed a, a huge stockpile of draft picks for this upcoming draft again as you said um it, it, even more than just those first four picks i think six in the top 70 is what they project to have so um you know five first and second round picks uh so so yeah i mean they're set up to, to continue bringing in young talent um i i think this is just a reflection of one after that aj mccarron trade debacle i, I think sashi brown was the odd man out the one the scapegoat for that uh the guy that got singled out i think that highlighted one flaw in sashi brown is that he has not been a leader uh, of an of an executive office in the nfl before and when word on the street was that john dorsey was ready to accept another management position you know he, he was going to interview with the giants i think the browns were you know saw an opportunity to get rid of brown who, who they had soured on because of that mccarran deal and, and bring in a guy uh, who has a proven track record and is more of a a leader in, in that front office uh, that can take the foundation that Brown has built, which is a, a really strong one. And it might be unfair that Dorsey is about to cash in on, you know, the embarrassment of these past two years uh, running the Browns franchise uh, and, and just kind of trading down, swallowing your pride, swallowing cap space in, in Brock Osweiler's instance. Um, and, and Dorsey is going to reap the benefits of that and, and possibly build a successful franchise, but um, I, I just think that there's too much bad blood uh, from that leaked AJ McCarron deal for Brown to stick around. Yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, Bob. If the Browns turn it around and this is the catalyst for it, John Dorsey's going to get a lot of the credit, but in reality, Sashi Brown will have laid the foundation for it. I mean, if this is if this is the path to getting out of this hole, Regardless of what John Dorsey does, and he still has to step up and do a good job, but Sashi Brown will deserve a lot of the credit for it as well because, man, there's a reason John Dorsey jumped at the chance to come to Cleveland. I I think this is the best situation for a general manager that I can remember in my lifetime. You look at all the draft picks he is going to have, all the cap space he is going to have, and he's got a young roster with a lot of young guys who have shown promise. I mean, you cannot draw up a better opening round for a general manager. And Bob, I'm just going to say it right now. John Dorsey inherited a Kansas City Chiefs team that was awful. In his first offseason, he went out and got... Andy Reid went out and got Alex Smith and had a big draft. The pressure's on, man. You've shown you can do it before. You have more resources you did when you did in Kansas City. I am expecting big things out of this offseason because I, I, I'm very excited for the John Dorsey hire. I think he's an exceptional talent evaluation waiter. He's probably was the best executive on the market. And the Browns got him, and he's got a ton of ammunition to work with. I mean, we're talking about an offseason that could see as many as three premier quarterbacks on the market. Phillip Rivers, Eli Manning, and Kirk Cousins potentially on the market via either trade or free agency. You're talking about an offseason that potentially Alex Smith could be on the market via trade, obviously. 
I mean, Bob, there is an opportunity for John Dorsey to take advantage of this situation because he has more ammunition than anyone else in football. And I expect big things not only in free agency but in the draft because this guy has shown he can do it before. And there is reason for optimism on the horizon. I mean, you can cry over Sashi Brown all you want. Yeah, he probably got a bit of a raw deal. But, Bob, this is probably as good of a guy as you're going to get running the show. And this is a year where the Browns cannot afford to miss because morale is at an all-time low. I I don't think there's a meter that can quantify how low morale is amongst the fan base. This this has to change next year. It, It has to turn around next year. No, for sure. And I think John Dorsey, more so than Sashi Brown, is the guy to, to, to take on that next step. I, I, I have this feeling that if Brown were still in this role, we might see more draft pick uh, stockpiling come the 2018 draft. It's time to cash in on, on those chips. Uh, you have three drafts worth of, of, of drafting you know almost twice the the allotted amount that other teams have i think john dorsey with his track record not only in kansas city but as the director of college scouting in green bay uh during a time in which they drafted aaron Rodgers, drafted clay matthews amassed all the talent uh on those rosters that that won a super bowl uh combined with what they did in the draft over the past few years in kansas city i think john dorsey's the guy to do that and, and to build upon that foundation again i don't think it's totally fair to Sashi Brown but I, I, I just I am more comfortable with Dorsey making aggressive moves than I am with Brown and his you know long-term process of uh, getting as many draft picks as, as humanly possible and you know just using the shotgun effect to, to bring in effective players I think John Dorsey can, can make some really bold moves and I, I would trust those more than I would uh, if it were Sashi Brown. Yeah, I agree with you there. I would trust John Dorsey's moves more than Sashi Brown's. I will say one thing, though. While I agree that Sashi Brown overall traded for more draft picks, the, the, the curveball move was that he actually went up and got David Njoku. So he has shown that he is willing to push the chips in and go after a player when necessary. And I think this offseason he would have had to pivot from that strategy because, Bob, the Browns have enough young guys on their team. You know, I mean, you can have too much young talent. It shows. They, they've they only won one game in two years because they are by far the youngest team in the league. So I think Sashi Brown would have had to pivot this offseason. It would have been interesting to see him on the offensive, especially, like I said, with, with potentially three or four premier quarterbacks available via either free agency or trade. The Browns have the cap space to sign one of them, the draft assets to trade for one of them. I, I think Sashi Brown would have gotten more aggressive but again, it's a moot point because John Dorsey's the guy. And if you're talking about putting the Browns in the best position for success, I certainly would rather have John Dorsey making these picks than Sashi Brown because of his track record. He's done it in Green Bay, as you said. The Kansas City Chiefs right now, that is John Dorsey's team. He is the architect of those Kansas City Chiefs that are or at least were a few a month ago looking like a, a favorites to win the AFC. They're in a bit of a funk right now. But the point is, um, I, I don't think you could have set it up any better, and, and this is a critical offseason for Cleveland. Yeah, certainly. Um, well, Chris, uh, one per member uh, of this new Browns regime is gone. Uh, it seems like Paul DePodesta might be safe, but uh, 
rumors are now circling around Hugh Jackson. What What is your assessment? How safe is his job right now? Well, I think it would have helped immensely had he won on Sunday. Um, I think the collapse, especially with John Dorsey sitting in the owner's box, uh, did not bode well for his future. And I don't care what Jimmy Haslam says, Hugh Jackson has got to be worried for his job. He could potentially be 1-31. I-, I-, I do not see how a veteran general manager like John Dorsey comes into this situation and doesn't want to hire his own coach. I, I cannot fathom that scenario. Especially you're looking potentially at a coach who best case scenario is four and twenty eight in the last two years. Yeah, that's as and good that's as assuming, it gets. <laughs> yeah, that's as good as it gets. And let's be real, they're playing the Ravens this week. I'm gonna just pick it now. Ravens are gonna win by a million points. Okay. There is no chance the Browns beat the Ravens this week. The only hope yeah. I think they have is if Pittsburgh pulls all their guys in week seventeen. Because I think the Bears are gonna beat them down in Chicago too. But again, not going to pick every single game. And I know, Bob, don't throw the prediction in my face. I was very wrong about them winning two of their last six games. <laughs> Point being, I just can't see how John Dorsey looks at this team, looks at all the mistakes the coaching staff has made in-game. Like, let's not give Hugh Jackson a pass here, Bob. We have been critical of him for the last two years. He has made very weird decisions, weird tactical decisions that have affected the outcome of games drastically, he hasn't, it's not like he's, you know, done everything right and the talent's holding him back. He has contributed to this problem as well. I, I would be, I'm going to say, I would be disappointed if Hugh Jackson is back next year. Yeah, I I, I thought, if you were to tell me this uh, even four weeks ago, I, I would have still leaned on the side of Hugh Jackson will come back for a third year in in which you know that that would be it a make or break year uh with John Dorsey coming in and Sashi Brown leaving before seasons and uh it it does not bode well it 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 shows that you know the Haslam's and the rest of the organization uh are getting restless and I know that I think that they bought into this idea that they're on at least a three-year rebuild program but I, I agree with you, Chris. I, I, I watch these Browns, and, and I can't say that they are well-coached. I, I think the defense is, that's, but that's Greg Williams' team. That's not Hugh Jackson's team. Hugh Jackson is the offensive coordinator. He calls the plays. They don't have an official offensive coordinator. And, and Chris, it, with this past week being probably the only exception, the offense over the past two years has been atrocious, and, and that's all on Hugh Jackson. I don't see development in a lot of guys other than the ones that are supremely talented. Uh, Deshaun Kaiser's development, which I know came with a huge asterisk that he's going to need a lot of time. I, I still don't think that he has improved much over over the course of, of 12 games. I, I just don't, I don't see it. Uh, now he did have a really good game, relatively speaking, uh, against the Packers, but you know, I just don't see that week over week improvement. And Hugh Jackson's supposed to be the quarterback guru. Uh, I think John Dorsey obviously sees all that too, <laughs> and maybe he'll give Hugh Jackson a, a one year pass uh, just because he uh, Dorsey can give him some added talent. Maybe give him a a quality quarterback uh, that could win now. Um, but I, I think now with with Dorsey coming in uh, with 
the signs of unrest uh, in in the ownership uh, over the the performance of the Browns, I think Hugh Jackson is likely out. Yeah, Bob, I'm I'm usually the first one to preach stability. I'm usually the first one to say three year plan. Come on, let's see it through. But Bob, I don't care what conversation Sashi Brown and Hugh Jackson had with Jimmy Haslam prior to the 2016 season. Even if Jimmy Haslam said, you know what, you guys can have two bad years. I don't think Jimmy Haslam had one in 31 in mind when he said two bad years. I mean, you can give him a pass for 2016 because they just tore away every veteran, put a huge, like just a super young team on the field, and they were clearly trying to go after that top pick. Clearly. Not even close. So maybe the one in 15 thing was a good thing because you're up there, you have a shot at getting an elite talent like Miles Garrett, and, and, you, and you went for it. But once you draft three guys in the first round and four guys in the top 52, you can't go 0-16. You can't take a step back from 1-15. Like, you set the bar so low, and you still couldn't jump over it. Bob, how bad is that? Like, yeah. You you can't do that and then expect to preach the three-year process. It's going to fall on deaf ears, man. I mean, you, you've you got to at least exceed the 1-15 in 15 bar. Yeah. If they had won four games this year, everyone would be fine. Five games, four, heck, even three. If they were if they were 3-10 and 10 right now, everyone would be fine. Because it's progress, and, and they probably look a little bit better than they do. You can't go 0-13 two years in a row and expect to keep your job. I don't care how many years they promised you at first. You have to show improvement in year two, and it's non-existent. You're 0-13 for the second straight year. That is awful. There is no sugarcoating it. Yeah. I I mean, you and I multiple times leading into this season said you can't get worse than last year. Like They're going to be better than last year. Um, and I think that they're at best are going to match their one in 15 record. I mean, that's, that's it. Um, and, and those are atrocious results. Uh, and you know, I, I, I can't, I can't support a coach that, 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 uh, has a, a two and 30 record over two seasons and advocate for him coming back for a third. I, I totally understand why Dorsey Haslam, why they would want to move on and bring in a fresh personnel. Yeah, but I mean, how many rebuilds start 3-13 and 13 and they say, okay, we got to show progress, and they get to five or six wins? I mean, but the bar was at one win. That is as low, that is, that is just about as low as it gets. Yeah. <laughs> you, got, you got to clear that one, man. You, you got to clear that one. And if you can't do that, I'm sorry. You, 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 you're not going to get any sympathy from me. I, I mean, year two, you can't step back from one win, and the Browns are dangerously close to doing just that. Yep. They got that uh, 0-16 championship parade ready. I, 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 like I said, I think Pittsburgh taking their foot off the gas is their only hope. Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, it's, especially the way the Bears demolished the, the Bengals. uh yeah. That defense is good, and Mitch Trubisky is improving. Yep. And being a competitor, I'm just gonna, I mean, his hometown team passed on him. I'm sure he circled this game on the calendar. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, really quickly, uh, Ravens at Browns, uh, just to get you on the record, uh, you are saying they're going to lose. I have been holding the Ravens fan. Well, first off, the Ravens have a great fantasy defense, but I have been licking my chops for this one. They are going to crush Cleveland so bad. Just don't even watch. Yeah, it's going to be bad. I also uh, am predicting a loss. All right, that's enough Browns talk <laughs> for for now. Let's move on to uh, the winning team in Cleveland. Uh, Cleveland Cavaliers, the, the, game, the win streak ended at 13 games against a uh, surprisingly, you know, decent Indiana Pacers team sitting at 16-11, fifth in the Eastern Conference. Um, but they had a good week, finishing three and one, uh, and and ended up uh, beating Philadelphia uh, the night after losing to to Indiana. LeBron with a triple double. Uh, Kevin Love out. Joel Embiid was out uh, uh, for the 76ers. Um, that was a pretty fun game. And Chris, the the one guy that stepped up, obviously, LeBron always stepping up, but uh, one of the role players that stepped up was Jay Crowder hitting a big three at the end of the game. Um, you know, Crowder hasn't exactly gelled and hasn't been that glue guy that he was in Boston uh, and that we expected to get. Um, that's not to say he ha- he's performed poorly, but uh, below expectations. Do you think that this game against the 76ers is him turning the corner? Definitely. I think Jay Crowder throughout this um 14-1 stretch has really started to find his own in the Cleveland Cavaliers system and whatnot. Uh, you know, he's not going to show up in the box score. You look at his numbers. He's not going to be the guy who's going to you know drop a bunch of points. What he's going to do is the hustle plays. You know, a guy tries to save it off of him. He catches the ball, dishes it to LeBron. He didn't even get an assist on that play because LeBron passed it again. But that kind of play down the stretch, those those things that aren't going to show up in the box score, that is where Jay Crowder thrives. Just the intense defense, the above-average three-point shooting. He can he can beat you in so many different ways that and play so many different positions and guard so many different positions that he is such an invaluable part of this team, especially when you're looking down the road and you're going to have to have guys who can guard multiple positions because you're going to see teams like Golden State or even Boston, guys that just have multiple big-time weapons, and when they get in those kind of switch-it-up modes, Jay Crowder's a guy who can switch off of different guys and still be fine. So, yes, it is very refreshing to see Jay Crowder have a big game in Philadelphia and start to find his way on this team. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think you know if, if I were to reflect back on, on the Cavs season so far, I'd say that Jay Crowder has been the biggest disappointment so far. Um, I, I expected more out of him. I thought that uh, the lineup in which he was at power forward and love at center would would uh, you know produce some fantastic results, and, and it didn't really turn out that way. Now they they were forced to return back to that lineup when Tristan Thompson went out. They subsequently went on this this long win streak. So I think it bodes well uh for, for the Cavaliers and, and Jay Crowder I think he's going to find his footing I don't think he's going to have the the 14 point per game production that we saw in the Celtics uh over the past two years but um I, I think his efficiency is going to go up and we're going to see that defensive intensity that that we're more accustomed to from Jay Crowder uh over the the the, the second half of the NBA season as, as we head into 2018 um I, I'm hopeful I mean I, I think if Jay Crowder improves uh combine that with 
the 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 guys coming back from injury uh, over the next month the, you know the Cavs are, are going to be in a really good spot come 2018 um hopefully that this 76ers game uh, is a is a turning point for Crowder for sure Almost definitely. And Bob, Bob, there's no way he comes close to that 14 points per game because those points are going to Dwayne Way and LeBron James, Kevin Love. I mean, when the guy who was taking all the touches from him in Boston is now at best the third option on the Cavs, um, you know, that, 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 that just squeezes Crowder out of the scoring role. But, but again, it's like we've said, you know, he doesn't need to score to be effective. And those are the kind of players you need to surround guys like LeBron and Kevin Love with, the guys who can play so well without having the ball in their hand. And he affects the game in so many different ways. That That's just not going to show up in the box score, but but his importance can't be overstated. And move, moving quickly to the MLB, uh, the biggest news coming out of uh, the hot stove in MLB isn't directly affecting the Cleveland Indians, though it does directly affect the team that eliminated the Indians uh, in the 2017 playoffs, and that's the New York Yankees trading for reigning NL MVP and home run champion Giancarlo Stanton. Uh, Chris, in my estimation of this trade, uh, the Yankees are getting a a mammoth home run slugger, the the preeminent power hitter uh, over over the past couple years, uh, and giving up relatively little for him uh, and just absorbing a mammoth contract. Um, how big of a deal is this that John Collar Stanton is now a Yankee, and, and how does that impact Cleveland? It is a huge deal because, uh, as you said, the Yankees eliminated Cleveland without him, and now he gets to hit with Aaron Judge in the same lineup. If that doesn't scare you, I don't know what will. Uh, the point is, uh, yeah, I mean, they went out and got the best player in the National League, and paired him with their outstanding rookie player, who was also an MVP finalist. Uh, yeah, it's it's exciting times to be a Yankees fan, and if you're a Cleveland fan, you got to worry just a little bit because the team that just beat you, the team that came a game away from uh, making the World Series, got better this offseason. Uh, that that's never a good thing when you're trying to um, you know stay ahead of them. The one thing I will say as an Indians fan, I still think the pitching on the Yankees is their big weakness, and uh, I don't think they've done much to address that just yet. Uh, They're starting pitching. Their bullpen, obviously, uh, very elite. But uh, starting pitching, I still think, is a weakness for the Yankees, and uh, the Indians definitely are very strong there. But yeah, no, this certainly keeps keeps New York in the conversation for the uh, AL East, and, and, and and definitely there there's going to be uh, very high expectations in the Bronx once again. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge move and one that uh, it's kind of interesting to watch play out. I mean, the, the Giants and the Cardinals made formal trade offers that the Marlins accept, agreed to, but that Stanton vetoed those. Uh, and then the Yankees kind of just swooped in uh, over the course of a couple of days and, and made a deal to acquire almost $300 million in, in salary and, and the reigning NL MVP, you know, pairing the AL home run champ with the NL home run champ uh, from 2017. Um, so yeah, that's a it's going to be a really scary three four combination in Judge and Stanton. It's also going to be a, a very windy combination. I mean, those guys could hit over 100 home runs combined next year. They could also strike out 400 times combined. I mean, they swing for the fences, and that's the one hope that I take away from it, and that the Indians with their elite pitching uh, from Corey Kluber all the way back to Cody Allen, 
can can take advantage of that. And I think that both are set for somewhat of a regression over their fantastic 2017 seasons, though they're going to still rake and, and hit a ton of home runs. I, I think if I'm a, if I am a, on the Cleveland Indians roster right now, knowing how cool and calm they are, I, I just imagine they all just kind of shrugged and went back to their business, um, and, and that gives me hope. Well, yeah, the, the Indians have been there before. They've been to a World Series. This incarnation of the Yankees haven't. Uh, Stanton, I don't believe, has played a playoff game yet. So, uh, yeah, certainly, certainly. The, I mean, look, the, the World Series isn't won in the offseason. Uh, if it were, the Indians would have been in the World Series because they arguably added the best bat last year and they lost in the first round. So a lot can happen between now and October. And you're right, Bob, these guys do swing for the fences big time. It would be unrealistic to think that Stanton's going to flirt with 60 home runs again, but I think uh, both of them hitting 40 is a reasonable expectation and that would still be an outstanding season and a deadly lineup. Uh, but but you saw Aaron Judge against the Indians in the postseason. Not a great series. And had they lost, he probably would have taken a lot of heat for an underwhelming performance against Cleveland. Um, So, yeah, a lot can happen between now and then. I'm still confident that the Indians pitching can hang with anyone, but it certainly makes it a lot tougher to beat the Yankees because they just added one heck of a player. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And then some other Indians rumors uh, circling the the hot stove. Uh, Jason Kipnis uh, being attached to... Uh, the, the New York Mets, the Mets seem to have interest in him uh, to shore up their middle infield. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on possibly dealing Kipnis? It would be bittersweet for me because Jason Kipnis has been such an integral part of this team, uh, both on and off the field. And it, it would kind of be sad seeing how he has been around for, for the rebuild and, and, and wouldn't get to see it all the way through. Um, I, I look at the end of the day, if the right offer comes around and, and they feel they can better the team, then so be it. Um, and, and I'm not going to, I won't, you know, sugarcoat it. They were better defensively when uh, Jose Ramirez was at second and Yershella was at third. But at the same time, uh, it, it just would be very bittersweet because I think Jason Kipnis is, you know, he's the kind of guy you want on your team and he's the kind of guy that you like to cheer for. He seems like a pretty genuine guy and a, and a, and a leader in the clubhouse. And, and he's a, a heck of a player when healthy, but but injuries have kind of dogged him the last couple of years. And uh, I, I don't know, I, it, would, it would be a bittersweet moment if they traded him. I, I, would, be, I would be sad, but at the same time, um, if they got a good return for him, I, I guess I, I wouldn't be able to argue with the logic. Yeah, I mean, the future of the Indians infield looks like Yandy Diaz, uh, Jose Ramirez, and um, Francisco Lindor, uh, third, second, and shortstop, respectively. That leaves Kipnis kind of as the odd man out, and that you saw him you know, flirt with center field last year. Uh, you know, Depending on what happens with Carlos Santana, maybe he, he transitions to first base with the Indians, but you know, there, there will be a time where Kipnis is not playing you know, starting every day in the infield for, for, for the Indians. If the Mets offer a, you know, I'm not interested in prospects at this point. If the Mets offer some kind of uh, combination of bullpen and outfield players that, that uh, can contribute on the Indians in, in 2018, I, I think they should definitely listen to it. Um, I, I agree with you, though, Chris. Uh, it, it would be sad to see because um, even before Terry Francona was brought on board, Kipnis uh, has been, uh, an electric player for for the Indians, an exciting player, uh, a guy that seems to, 
you know, with his limitations physically, uh, you know, give it his all every time, almost to a fault, kind of causing him to get hurt at, at certain times. But uh, what is his name? Dirtbag, right? I mean, he always gets dirty. Um, so that, that's the kind of guy that you like. Uh, you like the relationship between him and uh, Lindor as well, that, that you saw that budding friendship. So um, definitely be an integral piece that, that would be missing. Uh, but he seems to have played his way out uh, of the the infield and and part of that is performance uh, and another part of that as you said is due to, to injuries over the past couple of years yeah it would be sad but at the end of the day like you said bob they can get some some a couple guys who can help them i won't fault the logic but but it would be a bittersweet moment to see him go because he and brantley are kind of the faces of the beginning of this kind of rebuild and uh it was a shame to kind of see them not be around and down the stretch, you know, having to rehab injuries instead of uh, being a part of the the fun element. They 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 kind of suffered through the rebuild and and then missed out on a lot of the fun. Yeah, I mean, Kipnis played in the World Series and and had a good World Series. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I was talking more about this year than last year. Yeah. For sure. Definitely. All right. And we're gonna close this podcast off with uh, a, a preview uh, of things to come uh, in next week's episode. Next week's episode will be our, our last episode of the year, and we'll, we always like to close out with uh, Chris and I going through and picking all of the college football bowl games, all 41 of them. Unfortunately, due to our, our scheduling constraints, uh, by the time we record next week, uh, five bowls will already have been played uh, on December 16th, so, so we're going to give you a quick little preview here uh, and, and pick some of these. All right, Chris, uh, starting with uh, the R&L Carriers, New Orleans Bowl. We got Troy versus North Texas. Who are you picking there? I don't know, man. I'm going <laughs> to go <laughs> with Troy because they're 10-2 and two and North Texas is 9-4. and four. I've heard more about Troy than North Texas, so I'm going with Troy as well. <laughs> this, is, this is the fun part of these bowl pick-ems because, Bob, we get to some teams that I've never heard of before or never seen before. Yeah. It's just fun. It's like I thought they were, uh, yeah. I, I'm surprised that some of these teams are bowl eligible. But uh, moving on to the the Auto Nation Cure Bowl, Western Kentucky, the Hilltoppers versus Georgia State. Do not charge the hill on the Hilltoppers. Western Kentucky is going to win. Yeah, Western Kentucky. Uh, I'm picking them because of proximity to where I live. Bowling Green, Kentucky, is about an hour and a half drive. So uh, I'm going WKU. Uh, nice. Yeah, moving on to the Las Vegas Bowl. Chris, this one actually uh, two teams that we both know and is uh, possibly a, a good match of Oregon versus number twenty-five Boise State. The Legarrette Blunt Bowl. Remember <laughs> that was the big brawl that Legarrette Blunt punched uh, one of the Boise State guys. I'm gonna go Boise State because Boise State uh, they live for this kind of moment. Uh, they're ranked. Oregon isn't. Oregon just lost its coach, kind of, you know, disappointing year by Ducks standards. So I think Boise State will win this game. Me too. I'm going Boise State. Uh, yeah, for, for all the reasons you said, mostly because Taggart is now going to Florida State and, and Boise State um, had, a, had a decent year. Uh, I, I think they'll win it. And now we got the Jilden New Mexico Bowl Marshall versus Colorado State. I'm going to go Colorado State. Just because I feel like the Rams will beat the thundering herd, a lot of lot of grazing animals in this uh, in this game. I just hope they don't eat the grass the whole time and actually play football. 
we've been in sync so far, so I'm, I'm just going to pick Marshall. All right, and rounding it out uh, for this preview of our bull bonanza, we have the Raycom Media Camellia Bull, Middle Tennessee State University versus Arkansas State. Who do you got there? So I know who you're picking, so I'm going to pick Arkansas State just to irk you. Just to <laughs> no irk other you. reason. Yeah, um, I don't – I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll pick the Blue Raiders for sure because uh, I am attached to them, but um, – does not bother me one bit that you picked Arkansas State. You don't don't be Bob. I know you bleed Blue Raider. Yeah. You were a Red Raider. Now you're a Blue Raider, man. You just can't make up your mind what color Raider you want to be. I think those are your only choices. Is there a Purple Raider? Yeah, Mount Union. All right. Well, I mean, you look hard enough, Bob. There are like a million colleges out there. There are a ton of mascots. Yeah, I don't know if like a yellow raider or an orange raider, you know, you're getting weird. You know what? We'll research it and bring it up next podcast. Hey, maybe one of the bulls we're doing on next podcast has another color raider in it, but we'll have to find out next week when we go through all the other bowl games and a preview of things to come, our expert analysis of every single bowl, just a little taste of it. Uh, I, it's always a fun time. So hope you join us next week. But that is it for this show. Another episode of Clee Talk in the books. You can check out all our old episodes at FenleyRoadSports.com. You can subscribe via iTunes, also at FenleyRoadSports.com, or just search Fenley Road Sports in iTunes. Click Clee Talk. It's just that simple. Thank you so much for being a part of another show. Thank you so much for your support. We hope you come back. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Search Fenley Road Sports. And come back next week for another episode of Clee Talk presented by FenleyRoadSportsBot.com. It's bowl season, bowl bonanza, and hopefully the Browns, they're not going to win. So go Cavs and go bowl games. If you love them, enjoy them. There's a bunch on on Friday night. All right, I'll see you, Chris. Take it easy, Bob.